welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. We're in... uh... Well, we're in two books today, Zechariah chapter 4, stay there, and then also turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, in just verses 3 and 4. I've titled this message, Building the Third Temple of God. Building the Third Temple of God. Uh, We must speak to this because uh, the Apostle Paul... In 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2, references the temple of God. So we need to discern which one. If you're newer to the faith, you might ask, you know, you mean there was more than one? Oh yeah, oh yeah, there was more than one. King Solomon built the first temple of stone that was destroyed by Babylon as they invaded uh, about 586 B.C., Then the prophet Ezra records the rebuilding and the dedication of the second temple in Jerusalem. Uh, That was destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman armies led by Titus. Uh, That is in fulfillment of the Olivet Discourse. As Christ said, there will not be one stone left upon another. Under the Old Covenant, these physical temples... They served as, Colossians 2 verse 17 tells us, they were mere shadows of what is to come. They were merely shadows or symbols of what was yet to come, but under the new covenant, the substance belongs to Christ. These were shadows, but the substance belongs to Christ. And the shadows were going to eventually make way and become substance. And for this reason, the prophet Zechariah was given a vision of Zerubbabel building a third and, I would say, final temple of God. How do we get there? Well, I'll show you in just a few few minutes. And since Paul writes about a temple, the Apostle Paul, a, a temple where a man of lawlessness decides to exalt himself and display himself as being God, uh, we need to ask, what is the nature of that third temple? What type of temple is it? And how does the Apostle Paul view the temple of God today? What is the temple of God? And what kind of temple serves as the fulfillment of, of Zechariah's vision. Does God today or tomorrow wish to dwell once again in a temple made by human hands? Is that his desire? Or does God dwell in a spiritual temple built not by might nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. And who is ultimately going to build this third temple? Now, this question needs to be answered, asked and answered, because there are some professing Christians 
who are very enthusiastic toward helping Israel build a temple made of stone so that they can then hoist a dead carcass of a red heifer in sacrifice to God. Think about that. Zechariah was a prophet who lived during the rebuilding of the second temple. That started around the year 516 B.C. And Zerubbabel, by comparison, Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah, Judea, who laid the foundation of that second temple. But after two years, due to opposition to the building project, construction was delayed. But about 16 years later, uh, Zechariah was joined by another prophet named Haggai, uh, who was also joined by Joshua, the high priest, in in rousing the people to once again uh, begin rebuilding the temple. Folks, one thing that we learn from, from Nehemiah, who was primarily responsible for the wall around Jerusalem getting rebuilt, and Zerubbabel, who is seen as a builder of the temple, uh, is that when you are a builder, you are always going to encounter opposition to that which God is building. There are always going to be those who do not want to see success. Uh, The same as with churches today. You know, people stare at that foundation that that was laid by the apostles and prophets Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, and, and they stare at that, that bare slab, and they say, you know, I kind of like it like that. Just, just a bare slab, that kind of suits me. I like it like that. There's never been a shortage of people who are sour towards what God is building. But Zerubbabel assisted by Zechariah and Haggai, the prophets, and Joshua, the high priest, and others we will see, uh, they resume the work as a team. And uh, it is helpful to note that even John MacArthur acknowledges that Zechariah, uh, it is the most messianic book of the Old Testament, uh, this side of Isaiah. Call it the second most messianic book of the Old Testament because Isaiah is so clear about Christ and his suffering being pierced for our transgressions. Um, uh, Boy, Zechariah is is very, very messianic. It's astonishing, astonishing how prophetic it is of Christ. In fact, chapter 3 of Zechariah, as we read during the Scripture reading time, uh, shows God saying to the high priest, that you are builders who serve as a symbol. You serve as a symbol, a token of the future. How so? Well, Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 9 says, For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in One day, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. A righteous branch. Think of Jeremiah, a righteous branch of David who removes iniquity in one day 
and who becomes the true vine. Well, I have heard this somewhere before. And a little while later in Zechariah chapter 6, we find this same branch again who becomes a builder of God's temple, a priest and a king. And Zechariah, uh, Zechariah 6 verse 12 says, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is. Think of Jerusalem. He will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne, thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. A priest who is also a king, who becomes a, well, a wonderful counselor and a, and a prince of peace, Who is the branch that Zechariah is writing about? What's the name of this branch? It's Jesus. If you can't answer that question right after today, no soup for you. And immediately after introducing us to this branch, this righteous branch, this builder, this king, this priest, Zechariah chapter 4 begins with an apocalyptic vision. An apocalypse uh, such as most of the book of Revelation, it's a vision. It's a series of visions. It's it's images from God uh, that explain through symbols and imagery. Folks, you cannot interpret apocalypse, the symbols, as woodenly literal. You can't do it. You'll go wonky if you look at Zechariah chapter 4 in Revelation and just, just try to take everything woodenly literal. That is not the nature of apocalyptic literature. Apocalypse was never intended to be taken that way as a genre. And Zechariah receives a strange vision. It's a vision of a golden lampstand with seven lamps. It's fed by two olive trees. It's a fascinating vision that I read to you earlier from Zechariah chapter 4. He sees a golden lampstand. One like he would recognize was supposed to light the temple of God. But this prophecy reveals the lampstand as having changed. Can we have that photo? The lampstand has now changed. This is an actual photo, by the way, of the olive trees in the lampstand. No, I'm kidding. Zachariah said that, that would be the lamp in the temple. But this is different. This isn't uh, what I have seen previously. There's now a collection bowl. It has seven spouts feeding each of the seven lamps with oil from two olive trees. 
A Jew would immediately recognize that this lampstand, that is supposed to be in the temple. But it's also strangely different. The light of the lamp now has a perpetual supply of oil. There's no longer any need to be tended by a temple priest uh, daily to make sure the oil stays full so that the light will never go out. Uh, Rather, it is constantly fed through the two olive trees. Zechariah recognizes the lamp, but then asks the angel about the two olive trees, saying, what are these? And in verse 5, the angel replies, do you not know what these are? Zechariah answers, no. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel being a picture of an Old Testament builder. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God's spirit being the emphasis of the oil and the image. This is by God's Spirit. You can take that down, but save it for just a little bit later. Thank you, Eric. Now, what is the significance of Zerubbabel in the New Testament? Does anybody know? The only thing significant is that he appears in both, both royal genealogies of Christ. Jesus is Zerubbabel's descendant through Mary, and he is also a descendant of Zerubbabel through his stepfather, Joseph. Zerubbabel is mentioned nowhere else in the New Testament. Just there, just in the genealogies of Jesus. Yet the prophet Haggai writes an astonishing prophecy concerning Zerubbabel, It's in Haggai chapter 2 and verse 21. And there God says, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. Speaking plural now, of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders And the horses and their riders will go down, every one by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. One translation has God saying to Zerubbabel, I will wear you like a signet ring. What's the significance of of Yahweh making Zerubbabel into his signet ring? It's It's like handing Zerubbabel a scepter, a king's scepter. In fact, the signet ring implied that God was telling Zerubbabel, I will make you my scepter. The Message Bible translates it this way, quote, I will set you as a signet ring 
the sign of my sovereign presence and authority. Virtually all of my theological resources acknowledge to one degree or another uh, that Zerubbabel is pictured as a type of messianic king who builds God's temple while God assures that his hands will finish it. Do you know what is fascinating? With all of this emphasis on Zerubbabel, him becoming a king, his building and finishing of God's temple, Scripture never records Zerubbabel finishing God's temple. Never finished the second temple. And this is major, major stuff. Um, but you might reply, you might say, but the vision given to Zechariah, the apocalypse given to Zechariah states that Zerubbabel's hands will finish building the temple. It's a symbol, folks. It says from the outset of the vision to Joshua and the high priest is told, you and the workers of the temple are a symbol. And since the prophet Ezra mentions Zechariah and Haggai at the dedication ceremony of the second temple, what then is the purpose of this extravagant apocalyptic vision of mountains being moved, two olive trees, and God's seven eyes ranging to and fro, scanning the whole earth? Folks, these elements of the vision are in no way related to building that second temple. And what about the Lord's promise to build by His Spirit? Where do we see that fulfilled? And what about the branch who is promised to become the real builder of God's temple who fills both offices, priest and king? None of this concerns Zerubbabel. Do you know what Zerubbabel is actually famous for? Zerubbabel is famous for vanishing from the biblical narrative. He disappears. I remember from my days while studying undergrad at Moody Bible Institute that in one of my classes they made a very big notation of how Zerubbabel was notably absent during the temple dedication. And there exists no record of Zerubbabel's hands ever finishing that second temple. In fact, GodQuestions.org, a fairly reputable site, um, it acknowledges this in the following statement. Quote, Curiously, even before the temple was completed and dedicated, Zerubbabel's name disappears from the biblical record. It's possible, they say, that Zerubbabel may have returned to Babylon soon after finishing his work on the temple. Or, they say, it could be that the Persians feared a Jewish uprising and, and had Zerubbabel removed or executed. Maybe. Regardless, they say, Zerubbabel is revered as one of the Bible's great heroes 
laboring to reconstruct the Lord's house of worship and shining like a beacon toward the coming Messiah. Zerubbabel was a symbol of the branch that was to come. Knowing this, look with me one more time at Zechariah chapter 4. I'll pick up at verse 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And listen. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Also the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? Now don't, don't miss this conclusion to the, to the vision. But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the whole earth. Is this prophecy of building the temple where Zerubbabel's hand is going to go out across the whole earth while the seven eyes of the Lord scan the whole earth Which temple is God building by His Spirit while searching the whole earth? It's Branch's church. Zechariah's vision is a prophecy of the branch building the third temple. In the Old Testament narrative, Zerubbabel vanishes... The prophecies concerning him never transpire. He never becomes a king. He never wears a signet ring. Zerubbabel never overthrows thrones and kingdoms. He doesn't shake the heavens and the earth. He never becomes the Lord's scepter. He never levels any mountains into plain. He doesn't even bother to show up at the dedication of the second temple. What does Zerubbabel do? He vanishes from the biblical narrative. But who later appears? Who later appears to shake the heavens, overthrow thrones and kingdoms, becomes God's signet ring, symbolic of sovereign presence and authority, and assures that he himself will turn mountains into a plain for his gospel. And then he hands the Apostle John a measuring rod. You find this in Revelation 11. John is told to measure the temple, uh, the temple of God, but then, then is told, don't bother measuring the outer court because that has been handed over to the Gentiles. That, that belongs to the nations. Don't bother measuring that. And then God's eyes will rejoice 
when Zerubbabel's plumb line extends across the entire earth. Who is building this temple by His Spirit? John the Baptist announced the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 4 by also quoting Isaiah chapter 40. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. The reason all flesh sees the salvation of God is because it's no longer just Israel. And it's because the seven eyes of God are scanning the entire earth in order to build God's temple. Folks, the footprint of this third temple is huge. Extends all the way to the Netherlands. All the way through China. It's massive. The plumb line has to be held out broadly and far. And then in Mark 11, verse 23, Jesus says to his disciples, this is immediately, by the way, after Jesus curses the fig tree, representing Israel, and then it, then it shrivels. This is immediately after Jesus cursed the fig tree. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that which he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. The prophecy is of symbolic construction. The branch says, I'm busy building. In Matthew 17, verse 20, Quote, and Jesus said to them, If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. That promise by Christ is to move mountains, which fulfills Zechariah 4 and applies to temple construction today, and nothing beyond. You don't just get to move whatever you want just because you, you believe it. God will move mountains in order to build His temple. It applies to construction of Christ's church. You don't get to apply it to just whatever we want to make up in our minds if we just believe hard enough. Now knowing all of this, think about this just for a second. Who became God's scepter, a branch, a builder, a priest, and a king who declared, I'll move mountains in order to finish God's temple? It's clearly not Zerubbabel. Zechariah's prophecy is not about Zerubbabel. It is a messianic prophecy about another builder, a descendant of Zerubbabel, A a branch who comes, he builds God's temple, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. It is Christ who decided to lay a foundation made of apostles and prophets, and he said, I myself will be the chief cornerstone. 
And he declares, I will build my church. And folks, his hands will surely finish it. We are the third temple of God. And God's eyes are ranging to and fro across the entire earth as the gospel is preached, providing a light, not just in a stone building in Jerusalem, but providing a light to every nation. And Zechariah provides the blueprint for building this, this third temple. Can we have that photo one more time, Eric? Think of a light unto the nations. Zechariah asked the angel in verse 11, Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on the left? And I answered the second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? obviously to keep the lamp burning perpetually. So he answered me saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Again, God's light is not just shining in the Jerusalem temple, but it shines across the whole earth. Here's a question that needs now to be answered. Who are the two olive trees that, that keep feeding the light of God's grace upon grace in Jesus Christ? Don't look at your study Bible notes. It may be wrong. Who are the two anointed ones, literally, or more literally, the two sons of anointing, the two sons of oil, the Holy Spirit's oil? Who are these two anointed ones? Who are the olive trees? And for that answer, you have to ask yourself, where else in Scripture do I find two olive trees? One that is described as a cultivated olive tree, and another described as a, a wild olive tree, coming together as one, benefiting from the same rich root, burning a light among the nations. See Romans 11. That's where you find the other two olive trees. And yes, I heard a whisper, also into, into Revelation. Again, you're going to see two witnesses. Who are the two olive trees in Zechariah 4? Zechariah 4 is a messianic prophecy of God's grace upon grace, God's grace to the Jew, and God's grace to the Gentile, supplying the same oil of the Holy Spirit's anointing, for they are the two sons of anointing, and they feed one lamp of the gospel, which spreads light throughout all the nations. Zechariah 4 is a vision of Jew and Gentile coming together in Christ's church. 
shining the light of the gospel. Romans 10 states that God no longer makes a distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. And Ephesians chapter 2 assures that Jew and Gentile are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. God no longer dwells in temples made by human hands. Nor does He want to. By His Spirit, God has made the nations His third temple, and Christ's hands will finish it. And Jesus is not looking to build a fourth temple. And the reason I treated Zechariah 4 at length today is because I wanted to show you the building of a spiritual temple has remained God's blueprint from long ago. Folks, this isn't anything new to the Old Testament or to the New Testament. And it's important because some still want to insist that a physical location of God's temple is relevant. Folks, it is no longer relevant. In John 4, the woman at the well in Samaria, she asked Jesus for some clarity on the matter, saying, Well, our fathers worshipped in this mountain up in Samaria, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem, you know, the temple down there, in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, but an hour is coming and now is, said Christ, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. For all of the above reasons, when the Apostle Paul refers to the temple of God in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, under the new covenant... That cannot refer to a physical temple that will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And in fact, Paul uses the same phrase, temple of God, on five other occasions in his other epistles, and every single time he is clearly speaking in context of a spiritual building of God. The church is the temple of God. For one example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 10, the references to a building, to a foundation, to a temple, they're all spiritual metaphors. They're, they're metaphors. They're, they're images to help us to visualize. Paul writes, 
According to the grace of God which is given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Foundation of apostles and prophets. And another is building on it, says Paul, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation. Listen to this. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid. Follow me. Which is Jesus Christ, says Paul. No other foundation will be laid. And then in verse 16, Paul says in the plural, speaking to the company of Christians, do you not know that you are a temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Folks, you are a spiritual temple. And if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. You are the temple of God, both individually as the Holy Spirit dwells in you and corporately as we gather together to worship. We're the temple. Therefore, in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2, when the man of lawlessness is described as setting himself up in the temple of God, exalting himself and displaying himself as being deity, where does that occur? It happens in the church. Folks, there is no alternate temple that can be described as belonging to God. A temple of God. There's no alternate. We're it. A number of you have probably heard how a, a prominent preacher, pseudo-preacher, up in North Carolina recently declared boldly on camera and in front of his church, I am God Almighty. I'm not suggesting that preacher is the final fulfillment of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, but he definitely displays the spirit of the Antichrist. Scores of pseudo-preachers today are now claiming to possess divine attributes that only belong to God. Many claim through their words that they can speak things into existence. It's often referred to as the little God's doctrine. People are saying that they're becoming like God. That they're doing things like God. One preacher claims he can control the weather. I think we better leave that to God. Folks, this is all worse than heresy. It's worse than heresy. Uh, they are claims by man to be deity. It happens in the church. It now shows no signs of slowing down. It's actually expanding. As time goes on, they're, get, they're growing more bold to claim that they are God. Claiming to be God and playing God 
it's really not all that new in the world. Kings and, and others have been claiming to be God for, well, for as long as man's been on the earth. Men have been striving to become like God in the beginning. Satan told Eve, eat the fruit and you'll be like God. It's not new among men, but now today it has an increasing presence in an apostate church. And men and women have been taking their seat, taking the place of God in the temple for nearly 2,000 years. For this reason, a stone temple does not need to be rebuilt in Jerusalem to fulfill verse 4 before the day of the Lord can occur. It doesn't have to happen. With the spiritual nature of God's temple today, uh, that is a very poor interpretation of 2 Thessalonians, by the way. Jerusalem is never mentioned in the text. Israel is never mentioned. The prophet Daniel is never referenced I'll state next Sunday, a future covenant made by an Antichrist is never made anywhere in 2 Thessalonians, nor anywhere in the New Testament. You won't find it. That idea is imposed upon 2 Thessalonians, and in fact, it completely violates the new covenant that was promised uh, to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. The nature of the new covenant uh, the firm covenant in Daniel 9 is the new covenant in Christ. We discussed that a couple weeks ago. And I have stated on numerous occasions that even if the Jews or the nation of Israel, even if they do rebuild a temple on the Temple Mount, it's possible. It can never become the temple of God. No other foundation can be laid than Christ Jesus. There will be no other temple built that belongs to God. Man can build buildings. And Scripture assures that uh, with the advent of the new covenant in Christ... God no longer dwells in temples made by human hands. It's the reason that Christ prophesied in fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9 that the temple in Jerusalem would be completely torn down. God doesn't receive that worship any longer. Folks, Christians don't get involved with building a stone temple. The thought of dead animals being lifted up for the atonement of sin ought to be revolting to all true Christians who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Zechariah chapter 4 is a symbol, it is a shadow of the temple of God that would be built by the Holy Spirit. There is no returning to a temple in Jerusalem. Folks, that was a shadow 
Christ is the substance. And we aren't seeking to return to the shadows uh, in the Old Covenant. There is a whole book in the New Testament, an entire book that is devoted to the impossibility of the blood of bulls and goats taking away sins. It's called the book of Hebrews. And ironically, that falling away, I should say, ironically, that falling away and apostasy that is condemned in Hebrews included the desire of some who had outwardly professed faith in Christ who wanted to return to the temple sacrifices. You, You couldn't make this stuff up. And you know, if the Lord tarries, Israel may eventually get a temple rebuilt. It's possible. There are today people who identify as Christian who are enthusiastic about this. Some are even given money for the cause of rebuilding. Folks, that is not the work of God. And reinstating animal sacrifices to God is not within the sphere of Christian liberty according to the book of Hebrews. It's not optional. It's not within Christian liberty to restore animal sacrifices. Alternate sacrifices to Christ are prohibited. So true Christians may may not disagree on this. We are not to reinstate the sacrifices, or rebuild the Jerusalem temple. No other foundation can be laid. You say, well, that seems harsh. Jews receive the same access to God the Father through their Messiah, Jesus Christ, as do the Gentiles. There's no favoritism, there's no distinction. Both are of the olive trees. Both can come to faith in Christ and through the oil of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, they both shine a light among the nations. Jews have not been left out of the gospel to the nations. And under the new covenant, Jews do not receive any special future dispensation to restore temple worship again. What an awful offense to God. Lift up an animal in place of his son. And here's the danger. If a temple is rebuilt, scores of professing Christians are going to celebrate it. Many would probably join in in the offerings. As it was when Christ walked the earth, the temple could probably be successfully marketed. Maybe for $79.99 you can visit and get maybe some grain for a wave offering and Gentiles can stand out in the outer court there and wave it for a price. 
they'd probably allow a Gentile to wave grain from the outer court. Folks, think of the delusion that this would cause among many Christians. Think of the confusion. And when we speak of the end-time apostasies uh, through which people can be carried away with, there is possibly no greater abomination and apostasy than for a person having first claimed to have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, to make that claim, I've been sanctified through the body of Jesus Christ once for all, and then for that same person who professes Christ to afterward join his or her hands in offering a dead animal to God. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. There is no room for Christians to be involved in restoring temple rituals at all. If you love the Jewish people, you will share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if they don't want Christ, Hebrews 9.26 says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Folks, God has already offered a body, his son, as a sacrifice for sins once for all. And by God's Spirit, we have become the third and the final temple of God. That's it. Next week when we come in and look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we will cover this and expand on it. On what manifestations there can be of an antichrist and where that occurs. But there doesn't have to be a temple rebuilt in order for Christ to come and for the day of the Lord to, uh, to ensue. At the same time, they may actually get one built. And then we're going to have to deal with that delusion.